folks are streaming in and, and setting up, um, I'm just going to start off here. Um, and I want to welcome you. Um, I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs and direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is the home for our election administration program. I want to just give you a heads up um, that we want you to participate in today's program. Um, and you can see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button. And that's where you can click and give us your questions. Please do. We're going to get to you know, these questions. And they're an important part of, of our programming and an important part of today. Um, if you need live captioning, that's also an option. And you can see it at the bottom of the screen as well. It is the CC logo. Just click on that um, and you'll get live captioning as well. And um, we're pleased to be able to bring that to you. Welcome and thank you for joining our program today. Our special guest is Dr. Judd Choate. Um, Dr. Choate is Director of Elections for the State of Colorado in a position he's held since 2009. He's also an instructor with the Certificate in Election Administration program, which is bringing you uh, today's offering. Today, Dr. Choate will discuss Colorado's experience dealing with an insider threat and Colorado's legislative response to that threat and other threats facing election officials. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Choate. Thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Sure, thanks, Larry. It's great to be here. Um, it's uh, wonderful to see so many uh, people joining us today. Um, obviously, this is a very important topic and one that uh, I think elections officials around the country are taking very seriously. Um, uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through uh, the way we understand the threat, um, the way we understand the issues uh, surrounding elections administration, both in terms of uh, the uh, possible threat that elections administration and those who have access to elections administration pose to elections in um, the United States and to their own systems. But then we'll also talk about the other side of that coin, which is how do you protect your election officials as well? So we tried to marry up the two objectives, which is um, create a barrier, create protections, um, to your voting systems, but also create protections to your uh, elections administrators. So um, it's both the good side and the bad side of having insiders. Um, so let me walk you through, I've got a presentation here and so I'll just put that up on the screen. Um, and uh, we'll talk about uh, Colorado's um, specific issues and um, how we dealt with them. And also, uh, just I would just note that these are not Colorado specific. These aren't um, just uh, something that Colorado has experienced, although we have done so in a pretty public way. Um, it's also something that we're seeing around the country. All right, so let me start the presentation. All right, am I, did I do that right? Everybody seeing that? I think so. So uh, that's me, and you can see the uh, uh, 
info there. Uh, we'll come back to my uh, contact info on the last slide. So if you miss this, you can get it later. But feel free to reach out to me if you have questions. And uh, this whole presentation will be available to anyone who's on this uh, webinar right now, but also um, can be uh, available upon request if you want it sent to you. All right, so what is an insider threat problem? Uh, first, you got to understand the criteria of what qualifies as an insider. So an insider is any person who has authorized access to the equipment, networks, and systems that uh, are the sort of jumping off point for the important work that that organization does. And then the threat is the potential that that insider will use that um, authorized access to undermine the organization, to, to bring about harm to the organization. And in our context, that harm extends far beyond uh, what might be happening in a particular county or might happen in a uh, jurisdiction or even state. It extends to uh, the faith that people have in the outcomes of elections around the country and potentially even around the world. It kind of harms democracy in general when you undermine the way in which the uh, democracy works. Um, some examples. So I just picked some random ones out of the news. Uh, my apologies if uh, your uh, jurisdiction is on the screen, um, but we, uh, we have experienced this around the country. A couple of examples uh, that have recently become public um, or have been amplified are uh, in Coffee County, Georgia, and then the Antrim County, uh, Michigan case, which I know many people are very aware of. Uh, let me talk to you a little bit about Mesa County. Uh, I would note at the beginning that uh, we are in several lawsuits related to Mesa County, both about what uh, happened on the ground uh, at the beginning, but then also sort of all the dominoes that have fallen since then, in addition to the fact that uh, the county clerk in Mesa County um, recently ran for office and uh, lost a Secretary of State's race. And so we are in lawsuits about that loss uh, related to her request for recount. So there are lots of different pieces there, but um, the big picture is that, uh, as you probably are aware, those of you who are elections officials, your voting systems are not static. They uh, have to be changed from time to time. And uh, those upgrades or security changes uh, usually come in the version of a new certified uh, version of that software. So uh, the process that Colorado employs, which I think is very similar to what happens around the country, is that in the course of a year or potentially longer, uh, the vendor or vendors that operate in your uh, jurisdiction, uh, they make upgrades to that software and um, uh, that upgrade then has to be distributed to all of the voting systems in that jurisdiction. So the way Colorado is configured is we have 64 counties, 62 of which use Dominion software, two others use ClearBallot. So the Dominion software counties uh, receive periodic updates to their voting system software through our office, which is implemented by our team going out to each of those counties, 
uploading the new version of that software. Well, actually we pull down the old version and then we implement the new version by loading it and then uh, resealing it if uh, a seal is necessary and uh, resealing that equipment so that um, it goes back to its sort of pristine state with the gold image, uh, which is uh, loaded on that piece of equipment. And um, the county can then use that in an upcoming election. We uh, are, I know that this is somewhat unusual, uh, but we feel like that is something that can only be done by the state. So um, uh, Dominion, in this case, this version of reality, Dominion um, uh, provides that new version of the software. We test that software according to the um, parameters of Colorado law, and, um, and then we approve it eventually and we go out and do the upload. We don't allow the vendor to do it. We don't send it to the county to do it. We do it. We're there during the time in which that trusted build is accomplished. And it's called trusted build because that's the process of loading the trusted software onto the new or onto those systems. Um, in 2001, 2021, when we were um, arranging the new upgrade to the Dominion software, uh, we alerted the counties, we organized uh, our um, uh, plan to go around the state, worked with the counties to schedule a date and time that worked for them, and described to them the limitations of the trusted build, who could be there and under what circumstances. And again, without going into too many details, um, one of our counties went in before we arrived for the trusted build and made a copy or a partial copy of the uh, hard drive of that uh, unit, of the central unit. And then um, we came the next day or days that followed and upgraded that system to the new trusted version of that software. And then they came in and made another copy. So, um, so that's the sort of basic scenario that happened in Mesa County. I know the other examples are uh, somewhat different in that they are concerning the version immediately following or in the months that followed an election and really didn't have a lot to do with the trusted build uh, implementation. So, you know, all of these insider threat uh, conditions can happen under various circumstances, uh, but that's the Mesa County example. And, and if you uh, wanna know more about that, obviously there's a lot of news stories about it uh, and you can do a quick search and find out more and you can find out more about those other counties as well. But that sort of tees up the question of how do you deal with a person who has authorized access to that system, who is not treating that equipment in ways that meet the obligations of that office um, and potentially expose uh, the equipment, the software, um, the um, you know uh, faith that people have in that election to um, unnecessary and unwarranted scrutiny. So that's how um, the insider threat sort of um, shows itself. And Colorado chose to address it in a couple of different ways. So uh, this was Colorado's response. Uh, I would note that we also have um, responded in various ways related to uh, some policies and protocols in our office. We've also passed administrative rules, which we have rulemaking authority at the Secretary of State's office. Uh, but I'm gonna focus on two pieces of legislation, which 
as I said before, kind of the two sides of this coin. The first is, what is the threat and how can we prevent it or address it if it occurs? And then how can we protect our election workers who are working properly and doing the work that they should be doing to protect and, uh, the elections and do good work to you know, uh, make sure that Colorado elections go smoothly? So let's walk through this. So I'm just, I've summarized over a course of a couple of slides here what I'm going to go through. Um, so you just have a quick click that you can go to and sort of see the, the, the big uh, scheme of things. Um, the major provisions of the insider threat part of SB 153, and that's Senate Bill 153. So if I were to read it all out, it would be SB 22153 because it was a Senate bill that was passed in 2022 and the number was 153. If you do a search for Colorado SB 153, it will come right up. It'll be the top thing that comes up and you can see the actual language and uh, um, you know, download the actual language if you're interested. But the major provisions were, uh, we wanted to avoid tampering with voting equipment and leaking passwords. And so we created some guardrails around those. Uh, we created restrictions on imaging voting um, system equipment. Um, we uh, mandated a, a video surveillance and keyless entry to voting system areas. And we created a proximity to voting system equipment for um, county clerks in more populous counties. Um, and I'll explain that when we get into the details. We also in that bill had some election improvements, which sort of speak to the insider issue, but at the same time, were kind of more broadly designed to just improve Colorado elections. And those were, we created disqualifications to serve as a DEO. And I know that this is a general term that people know in elections, but let me just describe, a DEO is a designated election official. So this is the person who sort of puts their signature behind an election and they're the one that's running it under state law. And uh, the, the state has a chief election official and then when an election is conducted, they have a DEO, a designated election official. So, um, so a lot of the provisions that we're talking about are focused at this DEO level. We also created a certification requirement for county clerks and election workers. Again, I'll go through that, but it's basically training. We created criminal penalties for disobeying a legal order of the Secretary of State's office. Um, we uh, mandated that official tabulation of an election be conducted on a certified voting system um, so software or on a piece of equipment. And then uh, we also said that Secretary of State can certify county canvas um, results with sufficient evidence. And again, I'll go through that here in a minute. So those were the elements of SB 153. We were trying to do the insider threat while, while simultaneously creating some of these improvements which speak to insiders. We also had HB 1273. So this is, again, the full la language would be HB 22-1273. So House Bill 22-1273. Um, again, if you do a search for that, you'll find the full language and feel free to follow up with that. It had four major provisions, and that is we defined what election workers and election officials were, and then we gave those two groups various protections. The second one was uh, doxing. 
So um, as you'll learn here shortly, doxing is the release to the public of a person's somewhat personal, but probably public information. So let's say my name, my phone number, my address, maybe my email address, those kinds of information. And what we did in this law was, if you have a, a, a bad purpose in releasing that information, where you're trying to intimidate or harass, we made that illegal. Um, elections officials then uh, can protect information. So they'll be treated like other kinds of members of the government. And then uh, a crime to interfere with election officials performing their duties. So these again are the other side to the insider, protecting the insider, protecting the insider from the equipment. So let's walk through those um, and I'll do, um, that's the slide you missed. Uh, and I'll kind of walk you through the various things that we were trying to accomplish. So um, this is sort of symbolic of the old way we think of elections, uh, that what we had to protect were the ballots in the ballot box. Now it's much more sophisticated in our understanding of what needs to be protected. This goes back to the way in which elections have changed so dramatically over the last 20 years. If you think about, uh, for maybe some of you who have joined us today, um, you, the, the world that we lived in 20 years ago, prior to or immediately following the um, uh, 2020 election was uh, completely different, is completely different to where we are now because of all of the technology that has been implemented in elections, along with the focus on sort of the legal elements um, and the fact that so many of us in elections now have become lawyers or uh, lawyers uh, in, in uh, duty, perhaps not in education, because we have to do so much of our work uh, as it relates to, you know, the legal parameters of, of uh, you know, various elements of elections. So it's really important that um, security, technology, uh, the legal uh, limitations, all of that has been married together in the kinds of positions that we do now in elections. All right, so again, going through uh, those particular things I've mentioned in the summary. So SB 153, the protections against threats, the first one was um, dealt with tampering of voting systems and leaking of passwords. So SB 153 created a crime for three different things, tampering with a voting system, the unauthorized access to voting equipment, and then knowingly sharing voting system passwords online. So each one of those now, because of the wording in that statute, um, are illegal and are felonies in Colorado. So those are all class four felonies, punishable by up to two years in prison and a, a, with a maximum, two years minimum, maximum of six years in prison and a fine of up to $500,000. We did not have a previous law uh, that was on point with voting systems. We had just general laws related to tampering with equipment, um, which may uh, be applicable in certain circumstances. And in fact, in one of the circumstances of the case I mentioned, but uh, having a more specific one, which is targeted directly at voting systems was necessary so that the any ambiguity which surrounded whether uh, a person could access these equipment for uh, nefarious purposes was put to bed. Also, uh, the restrictions on imaging. So what is imaging? 
so this is a really interesting topic because we use these terms like uh, making copies of the hard drive or imaging a system. And we all kind of act like we know what they are, but uh, we wanted to clarify that. And uh, the first thing we wanted to do is we wanted to clarify that an election record is not a, uh, an image of the hard drive or an image of your voting system. So dispel or take away this whole argument that uh, people were imaging their hard drives in an effort to meet the election record requirement of federal law. We just put that to bed by um, putting it in our law that uh, an image of the hard drive is not an election record. But a system image is a download of all the contents of the system's memory, including the operating system, the program, and the files. So this is the sort of full boat of everything that's on that system, including the actual language used to drive those systems, and um, clearly something that is not an election record. So that was important to uh, delineate in the law. We said that this is different than the required backup uh, of the election records that's under state. We have it in state law as well. And in federal law, neither of those laws require an image. So, um, so that was a clarification we really wanted to drive home. It also bars the unauthorized imaging of a uh, voting system hard drive, but a county can request that they do that so long as they have a legitimate reason and the Secretary of State's office signs off on that, um, on that request. So we created the waiver idea or the, the um, exception, uh, but we wanna have some role in that. And one of the problems of a lot of the examples that we can all cite about the insider threat is that they were very narrow circumstances in which a jurisdiction and mostly one insider in that jurisdiction uh, was working alone or working with Confederates in, um, uh, in the election denier community or um, maybe even in their sheriff's office or, or others in county government. And it really had no involvement of chief election official for the state. And it really, in our eyes, those two things needed, needed to be married. Uh, another thing was this video surveillance and keyless entry idea. So we feel like uh, in Colorado, we had a gap in our law, which um, meant that there were times in which a county could have voting assistant uh, systems which were not uh, covered by video surveillance or behind key card access um, uh, controls. And so we wanted to build that in the law. So we created a 24-7, 365 requirement that, um, that our voting systems be in a room where you can constantly see that system live. Um, we created uh, a couple of exceptions where uh, an historical building might um, be able to wave past this. Honestly, I have yet to see a request which meets this uh, exception. Maybe it exists, but I think that even in historical building, we could probably find a place where we can put a key card entry and we can put it under video surveillance, but it's possible that that exception might exist. And then the General Assembly dedicated $1 million to create a grant fund, which can offset these costs, because this is a pretty expensive upgrade for many counties. 
One of the things, though, that I think the good side of this is that in conversations with the counties, and I've went, I've done a couple of trips around and spoken to many county clerks uh, since this bill has passed, um, is that it's sort of refocused us on the idea of getting all this equipment together in one room behind one guarded door and obviously uh, under video surveillance. And that's just so important because uh, in some of these smaller offices, which uh, don't have great um, uh, options for storage, they were sort of spread out. They might have like the ePoll book uh, laptops in one place. They might have the DRE or, or ballot marking device in another place. We're all ballot marking devices. Um, and then maybe the scanners in another place. And so this is not a good um, way to create the necessary security around those systems. So this has refocused us to getting them all in the same room, getting them uh, in a protected area and not in a common area where a person might be walking through to do um, you know, records, uh, title records, or to do marriage licenses, or uh, to sit there and go through uh, the land records of a particular area, which you might do in a county, especially a smaller county, where everything is in one location. So that was one of the big uh, benefits of this, is it kind of uh, refocused us into that one location. Uh, the, uh, we do have a couple of interesting things that we uh, added to this uh, requirement, which is the idea of a one frame per minute uh, until motion is detected system, This and then that triggers continuous recording. So again, the idea there is we don't want you to record a ton of stuff that is not useful. We only want it to record when um, somebody is moving in that area but we should have basic um, sort of uh, requirements about how that works. And then also uh, that uh, this does not apply to a voting location because in so many ways, voting locations are different than the location in which you would store this equipment because storage is almost always gonna be under county control or under jurisdiction control if you're in a uh, township or parish or uh, city principle of jurisdiction. Um, in our circumstance, we're talking about counties and we were typically under county control when you're storing your equipment. But then when you're out at voting locations, that may not be the case. So this does not extend to that because again, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to limit insider access. The insider principle really is about that time when you're not in an active voting circumstance, but instead that equipment is static and back at the office and, and um, is thereby sort of not the focus of people's energy. Um, so this is uh, the proximity issue, uh, maybe a very Colorado specific element, but you know, it might also be worth considering when you are crafting your policies. We had a law in place that said that um, elected officials for a uh, county that had over a thousand active voters, um, actually it's over a thousand people, um, could not physically touch the voting equipment. So we already had that in law. And the idea of that was that in these larger counties, and I list those out there, Denver, El Paso, Rapo, and Jeffco being our four uh, largest counties, in the circumstances where you're an elected official in these large counties, 
it's it's very unlikely that you would be um, the uh, the person that's running the election, doing the day to day work of the election, going unloading the equipment, um, moving it around there for trusted build, all of those kinds of things, because these are uh, jurisdictions with you know, 10, 20, 30 elections officials. And they have a person that does that work on site. It's a member of the team and they don't need the county clerk to have that, um, that kind of capability. We added in 153, uh, the idea that you cannot even have key card access to those locations. So it's not, it's not enough that you uh, should not be there, but you cannot be there. Uh, so you can't even get into it. And then if you are in a room with your voting system, you have to be there with another person. You have to have a chaperone, basically, and a person that does have access to that. I'll just note that we built this out in rule where there is a grand total of four people in each county that can be in that room with that equipment. We put it into rule that, um, that we're limited to four people. Uh, a county can specify who those four people are. It can't be the county clerk, but, um, and by the way, the four is the maximum number. And that's really what you're talking about when you're talking about those very large counties, the counties with 500,000 or more people. Um, most counties, you're really talking about two people um, and maybe even one in a very small county. Um, oh, by the way, at the bottom of that, there are a couple of little uh, exceptions. If you are uh, going to vote, uh, that's fine. That's obviously an exception. And if you are at a polling place where um, the uh, equipment's being used and you are serving as an election worker in that capacity, there's an exception as well. Again, both of those are exceptions that are focused at the voting part. And the insider threat bill is not really focused in that two weeks or so of voting it's focused at the time where all of that equipment is uh, back at the central location. Okay, election improvements. Now we're sort of deviating a little bit off the insider, but you'll see the connections here. So the first uh, election improvement was this idea of creating disqualifications to serve as a DEO. So we wanted to create qualifications and disqualifications. And the disqualifications so DEOs, again, just a reminder, that's your designated election official. Those are the people that usually we think of as county clerks or maybe your election supervisor. Those are the people that are usually designated in law to run an election. Well, in Colorado, you cannot serve as a DEO if you've been convicted for an election offense specified under Colorado statute or a similar offense in a, in, or a similar offense in a different state. Um, also, we added the having been convicted of committing uh, or a conspiracy to commit sedition, insurrection, treason, conspiracy to overthrow government, or similar federal offense. So you can probably see where that's going to. We don't want anybody in Colorado who has been convicted for their role in January 6th to be to serve as a DEO. So that's where those are the two disqualifications that we put in SB. Uh, 153 related to uh, who can serve as a DEO. Now, the certification side of this, so the sort of positive side of this is, how can you become certified to serve as an election worker? Well, SB 153 lays out this idea that 
um, anyone who operates as a DEO in Colorado must be a certified election official. And we define what a certified election official is as being a person that completes the uh, certified uh, trainings. And we currently require 13 of those classes to be to become certified. That is a, uh, it's set up by administrative rule. So um, uh, I left out the word rule there, but uh, by administrative rule, we have currently uh, required 13 classes. We can increase that by rule. We could go to 14 or 15 or 16, dependent upon what new things happen in elections which require additional classes. We actually have in Colorado many more than 13 classes, and you can pick and choose the classes that are most relevant to you within some parameters um, to complete that certification and um, be able to become certified to be DEO. Uh, those classes usually average around two hours. Some of them are a little shorter. We have some that are as short as around 45 minutes. We have others which are longer. And in fact, many of our in-person classes uh, are half a day. We may even have ones that extend more than half a day, like almost a full day. But we have in-person and online options. In fact, uh, you're required to take some in-person classes and some online you're required to marry the two. So uh, previously the certification requirements did not require uh, the county clerk to complete the certification. So in the example of Mesa County, that clerk did not complete certification classes, uh, but served as the county's DEO in the 2020 general election. That could not happen now because SB 153 would require that clerk and any clerk that served in that role to complete uh, the DEO required certification training classes. Um, that is not to say, however, that a county clerk, um, a person is barred from being a county clerk if they fail to finish these requirements. You can still be a county clerk. We're not telling you you can't be a county clerk. You just can't be a DEO. So. In that circumstance, the DEO would have to be some other member of the staff or a person that comes in from another jurisdiction that would serve as a DEO in that circumstance. And often, well, in that, in that circumstance, every one of those cases, we are going to be involved in that at the Secretary of State's office. We're probably going to have uh, a long conversation or a series of conversations with the county about who the appropriate person is to bring in to do that work. And uh, in fact, we have done that and continue to do that in um, you know, cases around the, around the state where we deem that uh, for whatever reason, it's not working out quite right in a particular county, you need help, we're going to send you a person who can serve as DEO for that election um, and oversee what the work of that county. So that's one of the, we're sort of trying to lock in that idea of you need to be certified. You need to be the right person to be able to conduct that election. You need to be the qualified person to do that work. Uh, another thing that we did in SB 153 was we created criminal penalties for disobeying a legal order of the SOS. So uh, the Secretary of State's office has the power to order under um, Colorado Revised Statute, so C CRS. And the provision there is 1-1-107D, uh, that didn't change. We still have those powers, they still exist, they're still enforceable. But the idea of 153 was it added this expedited judicial review. 
so that the court can chime in quickly to ensure that it's timely um, reviewed those orders and that if a county or an official disobeys one of those orders, especially like a legal order from the state, and in this case, one that's been reviewed by a court, uh, there are penalties for those violations. And um, there are a couple of different layers of this. One is the violation of what we call the acceptable use policy. This is for those people who sign the acceptable use policy to work in our uh, statewide voter registration database, which we call SCORE. So when you see there, uh, before you use SCORE, before you can ever get into SCORE, which is our, our database of voters, you have to sign an acceptable use policy. And then we have two-factor authentication, you get in and uh, you can start doing your work in SCORE. And we have various layers of access to SCORE. Very few people uh, in counties or at the state level have full access to SCORE to be able to use all the pieces in our statewide voter registration da database. Most of our folks just are able to do the function that they are authorized to do, or maybe the couple of functions. And um, you have to sign the acceptable use policy to get into any of those. I would just note, by the way, that I have very limited access to SCORE. I can go look up a voter and that's about it. I have that you know, very limited access and SCORE. Whereas other people on my team at Secretary of State's office have much more involved uh, access to SCORE because they need it. And we are very conscientious about who has access and under what conditions. Well, if you violate that acceptable use policy, which is a couple of pages long uh, and describes you know, uh, the way you access it, uh, the fact that you can't let anybody else access it, what you do with the information you have um, available to you in SCORE and so forth. If you violate that policy, uh, you are violating an order of the state and uh, are subject to a class one misdemeanor. Also just generally the orders of the Secretary of State. So these are the orders that uh, occasionally we issue related to a particular county, usually in the setting of an election where in, in most cases, something's gone wrong and we're trying to help them. And the easiest way to, to help them is to order them to do it just this way or order them to accept the fact that this new person is coming to their county to help them oversee that election. And then we also created this whistleblower penalty for anyone reporting election offenses. So if you are a whistleblower and uh, the county is treating you unfairly by the fact that you are reporting um, of reporting these violations, these and others, uh, then uh, they also face these same penalties. And I list below that those are a class one misdemeanor with a fine of no uh, more than $1,000 and up to 364 days um, in jail, um, different than a felony. Felony is imprisonment. Um, uh, a misdemeanor is just jail, just jail, as if it's nothing. Um, so uh, another improvement is this idea that counties must count their ballots um, with certified voting equipment. This is a requirement of all counties that have more than a thousand active registered voters. Uh, they have to use uh, uniform tab tabulation under Title I um, which is our title, elections. 
Uh, it does not apply to all non-Title I elections, so municipal, school board, special district. If it's being done outside of Title I and not by a county official, then this does not apply. And uh, we just note that this was requested by the county clerks themselves. And I think part of that is that they are really getting beat up by election non-Iers coming to them and saying, um, we need you to hand count everything. And the county uh, and their county election officials knows that hand counts uh, create, introduce a lot of fraud, introduce a lot of errors um, and the potential for fraud. They are incredibly slow, they're incredibly expensive um, and uh, frankly lead to many of the problems that I think the election deniers believe that they are trying to solve that way. We do say that uh, a county is permitted to do a hand count if they've had um, you know, some sort of problems with their uh, hardware or software. There's a great example of that we had in Colorado in Montrose County where through really no fault of their own, it was sort of a left hand, right hand accident. Uh, we had a county, Montrose County, that uh, created two different versions of an election and issued ballots from two different versions. And what that meant was that one of those sets of ballots had to be hand counted. And um, in that Montrose example, it was around 8,000 ballots that had to be hand counted. It took them a week of about a dozen people working at three different tables in groups of four doing that work to do 8,000 ballots. Uh, we were there for most of that. I went for it. We had other people in the office um, who uh, supervised that work. And that's what we would typically do. Um, I would note that uh, counties are absolutely 100% permitted to do a hand count if they want to at their own expense once they've certified the election. So we're not, we're not saying you can't do a hand count. We're just saying you have to do that hand count after the election is over. And then the last improvement is that if a Canvas board can't come to a conclusion about an election, uh, much the, you might have read about the problems that New Mexico had uh, for the state primary, a couple of months ago, uh, we have a provision that says, uh, if we have sufficient evidence to certify that election ourselves, we will, or we could designate an appropriate certified election official to do that review. So we're back to that idea of the certified DEO um, if a Canvas board can't come to a conclusion. All right, and then we had this uh, HB 1273 uh, protections. I'll go through these real quick. Here's your uh, proverbial um, cartoon related to elections workers, and that does accurately capture 2020 in all of its uh, glory. So some of these protections are, we defined what election workers and elections officials are so that we could set up the sort of two-tiered protections. Election workers are me and people in the counties that do elections work, the staff, those people that work at the Secretary of State's office, and then election officials are those people who are typically part-time workers like judges and uh, municipal election officials and so forth who work um, in elections, but on a part-time basis. Uh, and back to the idea of doxing. Uh, doxing is documenting or publishing, broadcasting in some way, information about a person that might expose them to person, uh, physical threat or financial harm. Um, this is usually legal because this information is usually um, available. You can like go out and find it about people, where you live and 
um, your contact information. It only becomes illegal under this provision in 1273 if it's being done or the purpose behind it is to intimidate or harass. And that creates a, a class one misdemeanor. We also uh, allow for election workers. So workers being again me or people that work in the counties, uh, they can go to uh, various gov government offices and ask that all of their personally identifying information, PII, and other information from online records uh, be protected or not disclosed to the public because the dissemination of that information might cause a, an imminent threat. That comes from all of the threats that so many of us have received after the 2020 election. Um, we just wanted to create some protections. And then finally, uh, in this protection bill, we had sort of the two sides of the coin of active performance of duty. So 1273 creates a crime for interfering with an election official, either while they're performing their duties or in retaliation for performing their duties. And so that created a class two misdemeanor punishable by 120 days in jail. Uh, this is the less than threats and assault and those kinds of things. It's the, um, you know, trying to interfere with the performance of duties. So we didn't really have that in law and we wanted to make sure we had it. All right, so that's me again. Um, I hope you got something out of that that maybe you can take back to your jurisdiction. Uh, it's kind of tricky because we all do elections in various ways. And so it may not be that those are 100% applicable to you, but uh, they are kind of, uh, you know, an example of what a jurisdiction could do to try to create some insider um, protections against insiders and protections for insiders. All right, well, let's open it up for questions. What do we have? I can't really see the world here. Let me stop sharing. In the Q&A, I see questions. Um, let's see, Jolie has a question. Uh, oh, hi, Jolie, how are you? Um, what information would have been included on the hard drive of the machine that was copied or unauthorized prior to the trusted build? Yes, so good question. So um, the information that we believe that the um, uh, folks that were making that image in Mesa County, what they were trying to do is really get the code. So they were trying to get the uh, way that the system operates, not a record produced by that system, not like who voted or when or under what circumstances, uh, but instead uh, how that system counts votes or how that system catal uh, catalogs votes. Um, and that is clearly not a record of that election. That is why that's the part that is certified. That's the part that goes through the front end process of, um, of you know, the certification of that software, the review, the state review, the implementation, all of that is protected on the front end. Um, Kurt, uh, curious about what qualifies as tampering. I don't know what that references. Um, tampering in this context, I think what we're probably talking about is accessing those equipment, going into and starting to fiddle with uh, a piece of equipment, um, removing the, um, you know, seals and so forth. So I'm guessing that that's what that question relates to. 
um, add verbally to sharing the passwords? Yes, I think that that is implied by the statute, although, and that's an interesting uh, point, we might want to add that by rule. So in Colorado, we're really lucky. We have broad rulemaking authority at the Secretary of State's office. Rulemaking, again, for those um, you know with less of a history of this is the law says one thing, we uh, then try to take that um, uh, law and then uh, you know put put parameters around it, try to build it out somewhat. And uh, because the law usually says a person can't do this, but it doesn't describe the circumstances under which you can't, or maybe the circumstances under which you can't. And so we use that rulemaking authority. So I'll I'll put that in the back of my brain, and maybe we'll address that. Uh, were there cases of elected officials that touched voting equipment? Uh, I understand why voting locations. Um, okay, so um, yes, uh, there were. And so we were trying to protect against that. Um, were there actual crimes that were occurring? No, not really. Um, but there were cases where we were concerned that the wrong people were in that room and under the wrong circumstances. So that's why that law was originally um, um, you know, crafted that way. Um, let's see. Uh, next law, our next question is uh, from Amy Sherman. What were the main reasons that some lawmakers gave for voting against this bill? Well, in Colorado, there were the folks that considered this uh, legislation to be sort of um, agnostic as to uh, who it was uh, about and under what circumstances it would be applied. And then there were people who believed that it was specifically about a county clerk or a couple of counties and were targeted at a person. And that's not what we were trying to do, but that's one of the reasons why um, some folks didn't like it. Um, I, I will agree with the premise of the question, which is, why wouldn't anybody be for this law? Uh, good question. It seems like a law that is broadly a good idea, but uh, we didn't get everybody to vote for it. I would say, though, that both 153 and 1273 were both bipartisan. We had Democrats and Republicans voting for both, both of those laws. Um, Jill asks, will you describe the, a whistleblower penalty? Um, so this is a circumstance where a, let's say a county official understands that a county clerk has done something in violation of the law and they, and they tell us, uh, but then because they tell us they face um, a, you know, potential penalties or potential out, bad outcomes for them, they are a whistleblower and this uh, prevents a county from um, doing something you know bad to that person because they disclose that information. Uh, Pamela Smith asks, uh, what is the regular checking process for version control? Yes, okay, good question. So this is a very deep end of the pool kinds of question. So at all times, all 62 counties that operate Dominion and the two counties that operate Clear, clear Ballot are operating on the same version of that software under 100% one, of the time. There is not a circumstance in which a county is permitted to operate on the non-certified version of that software. So that's why uh, when a new certified version of that software um, is implemented or comes to our office and we certify it, 
we then schedule for a couple of months trips around the state to implement that software, to upload that software, remove the old version, upload the new version. And uh, you cannot operate the system if you are using um, an old version of that software or perhaps a version of that software that doesn't match the certified version. Uh, Jeremy Washington asked, if someone earned a certified election official credential from another state, would they be certified? No, they would have to become recertified in Colorado. And in fact, that happens a lot. We have people that move to Colorado, maybe are hired by a county in Colorado. Um, and uh, because of that, they, you know, have to take a bunch of classes. They got to spend, you know, a week of their time trying to get up to speed on some of these things that are uh, very Colorado specific. Uh, another question, I'm running out of time. Uh, what can be done with uh, immediate threats such as people threatening voters or election workers and worse? You know, um, very good question. Uh, there are, fortunately, there are already laws in place about harassing government officials or, uh, you know, doing various things which qualify as threats just generally. And so, you know, um, that was, uh, that's one of the things that we um, already have in place. And um, in a polling place circumstance where something's happening in real time, usually you can just call the police and you'll be okay if, if it's bad enough. Uh, let's see. So uh, Michigan, Michigan has a very decentralized system. Oh my goodness. Um, I am, uh, I feel bad for Jonathan Brader, who is the elections director out there. I'm so glad I only have 64 people. He has like 1600 people. Um, it's, you know, it's just a quirk of the way that that system works. And um, my hat's off to the administration of that system. I think it would be really uh, hard to, uh, uh, to do it. And, uh, but they do a great job. I tell you what, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, some of those upper Midwest states are some of the best election states in the country. Kim Alexander asks a question. Uh, do your new laws prevent the kind of situation where a county official other than the clerk or DEO can change the locks on a building? Um, does it speak to that particular maybe? Because I would say that that is trying to manipulate a vote, piece of voting equipment. So yeah, maybe. Um, it, clearly what we could do is go to court right away. And uh, since that person is not the DEO and the DEO is supposed to have control over that equipment, and that's probably the solution is that there's probably something else in the law that puts the DEO in charge of that room. Um, so that's a good question though. I'm, we might have to build out a, a rule on that too. Okay, two more quick ones. Can you briefly explain how obtaining an image of a hard drive could allow someone to manipulate results. So they can't manipulate results because by then the election's over. You know, the election's already happened. Uh, but the, um, the thing, what they can do is figure out how that system works so that they can find vulnerabilities in real time. And in fact, that was one of the, you might, this is now I'm really inside baseball, but uh, the um, cybersecurity infrastructure security agency recently put out a report about Dominion and in which they outlined uh, several um, issues that have been brought up by Alex Halderman um, uh, about how that system operates. In fact, you can build out a bunch of protections which are not about the software. It's about the way that you conduct the election that you can prevent almost all of those kinds of potential vulnerabilities. But 
if somebody has like endless time with a system and can sit there with the code and play with it, they could very easily figure out ways in which that code could be manipulated um, for the next election. And you know, that's why you don't want people to have access to that level of information. There are There is a real push for um, sort of open access to uh, these kinds of software in the future. I think that that would be fine if, if vendors wanted to go with um, with the kind of you know open access uh, to their software. That would be great. But until then, uh, we have not constructed software in a way that that largely protects it from that kind of level of manipulation. And then finally, um, Lisa Brown, did Colorado already have legislation allowing certain individuals to have PI removed? Yes, we did, and it was largely for um police officers uh prison officials uh da's u.s attorney fbi agents those kinds of folks and this just extended to that and yes it is the kinds of things you cite here which are voting deeds marriage license and so forth all right so i buzzed through those questions uh sorry that um i've taken all of our time uh let me do before we're all through here let me um, tell you just a bit about the CEA program. So um, this uh, webinar was sponsored by our Certificate of Elections Administration uh, program at the University of Minnesota. So you can still sign up for classes this semester. Uh, there are two ways to take part in the CEA program. You could apply for the full program. So to go down the certificate and get the classes necessary to become a CEA or you could do one-off classes as a non-degree-seeking uh, student. So um, if you want to sign up for the full class uh, certificate program, then you really need to do that by next Tuesday. So uh, learn about that program, um, get to know it, understand what the obligations are, and apply by Tuesday. Uh, if you are more interested in just taking one-off classes, you can absolutely do that. And you can do that by the start of each one of the classes. There are four classes that will be taught this semester. And uh, well, the first class is uh, the Survey of Elections Administration. So this is your basic comprehensive course of general election, um, uh, election administration. That's being taught by Neil Kelly, starting on Neil Kelly. Yes, I said Neil Kelly on September 6th is when that class starts. Um, I tell you what, when I saw that he was teaching this class, I was like, you know, I might go back and take that class. I mean, Neil Kelly is such a rock star and um, we're incredibly lucky to have him in the CEA program. He was the uh, county clerk in, or whatever they call it out in California, I think the registrar of voters um, in Orange County, California, and is a rock star of, of, uh, of elections administration. Uh, Larry uh, Jacobs, who you just met a moment ago, uh, is uh, teaching strategic management of elections administration, also beginning on uh, September 6th, so you can still sign up for his course. And uh, then later this semester, beginning on October 25th and extending through uh, the end of the semester, uh, Gina Roberts is teaching. Uh, she's from the Citizens Clean Election Commission in Arizona, and uh, she's teaching a class on voter outreach and participation. And then uh, we also have uh, the world-renowned Jennifer Morell, uh, who's uh, at the elections group and used to work 
in Colorado and Arapahoe County and is a complete rock star. She's teaching physical election security. Uh, so, and that's a two-parter. There's the um, uh, um, physical security and then um, online security or um, um, the internet security. Uh, and that, that course is being uh, taught on in October as well, October 25th. So sign up for Jennifer's class as well. So we've got the four classes, two that start up here in the next couple of weeks, and then uh, the two that start up in October. If you want to know more about the certificate program, please uh, look into that by um, August 23rd, and or you could just sign up for those courses. All right, I have managed to drone on until the very end of the class. I will give up my screen to uh, Larry Jacobs, who can uh, uh, end the program. First, I want to just say a um, round of applause for Judd. This is a, a master class. He covered a whole lot. And those of you um, who've taken classes with Judd in the Certificate Election Administration know that he is a phenomenal teacher. He's one of the most popular. Um, and uh, if you haven't, you're missing out. So you should look at Judd. You're teaching a class in, in the spring. Is that right? Yeah, I teach election law in the spring. And it's I just I'm not saying anything about me but it's a fantastic course. You will really enjoy it. And it's the whole sort of panoply of elections laws going all the way back to uh, the constitution and the civil rights act and the voting rights act. I mean, it's, it's great. It's a really fun course. So uh, those of you who are Judd Choate admirers and respecters uh, of him, sign up for that class. Registration will be in a few months. Um, so thank you very much, Judd. This was absolutely phenomenal. And you know, just looking at the number of people who registered for the class, came today, stayed throughout the hour presentation, and the many people have been in touch about, will there be a recording of this? And let me just say, yes, there is a recording. It'll be up on YouTube. There'll be a podcast. And, um, you know, you have access to that. Uh, um, and your colleagues have access. Please feel free to share this with others. Uh, we found these kind of uh, sessions really to be very helpful uh, for the field. Um, so let me just uh, close by again, thanking Judd um, and thanking all of you for being with us. And um, we look forward to seeing you for our next program, which will be coming up. Thanks again, Judd.